This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. We've got some arty stuff for you today, haven't we, Alina? Art is the way forward now, ladies and gentlemen. It is the way forward. We neglect it. We've been bad. We apologise. But we're really excited because we've got Breeze Barrington with us, who is just finishing her PhD about British artistic culture in the 17th century. She's also a freelance writer. You can find her regularly in the magazine Apollo. So head over, have a read. Welcome. Thank you. Hello. So Breeze, you're going to talk to us about what is essentially your new project, aren't you? Which we're really excited about. Tell everyone what it is. Yeah, that's right. So um, I started, as I was doing my PhD, um, and I was looking at all of these sort of the, the cultures of collecting, the cultures of production of different kinds of art, and I kept coming across these, these women who there'd be a sort of sentence that they were there and then nothing else. And sort of by finding that increasingly frustrating, um, that's sort of leading me on to the next project that I've started, which is really looking at female artists and patrons during the 17th century. They were very much there. Um, you know, what did they do? Who were they talking to? What was their kind of role in it? So talk to us about the style of art in the 16th and 17th centuries. What were the artists influenced by? So this was a period of of really fundamental change in the style of art, um, moving from the Renaissance to the Baroque, all of which really started in Italy. I mean, of course, artistic culture flourished in other places too, but Italy was really the place at the forefront of the Renaissance. Um, This was a movement that sort of properly took hold from the beginning of the 15th century. Uh, There were lots of factors involved in this movement in terms of inspiration and how it flourished, which I won't go into now. Um, But for visual art, the most important influence was a kind of rediscovery, if you like, of the classical world. So during this period, you see an abundance of artistic works depicting classical figures and stories as well as biblical. Um, Then by the time you get to the 17th century, these influences are still there but you're really into the Baroque period. Um, This art, while it told the same stories, was much more focused on human emotions and expressions. Uh, The colors are very intense and there's real movement in the the paintings um, and in the sculptures. And there's just a sort of intensity to the work, which is really a development on from these earlier Renaissance painters. Uh, It's much more shocking in many ways. Uh, It's a really sort of intense visceral visual experience you know you you stand in front of a Caravaggio or or an Artemisia and you're just sort of knocked back by it it's this kind of explosion um yeah looking at them as a very physical experience you've mentioned that these women are not mentioned nearly as much as they should be who are they and how do they come to become artists um 
yeah so so there are certainly lots of these women um around at this time of course it was much more difficult for women to become artists during this period so there are far fewer of them um than there were male artists um it's perhaps unsurprising from what i was saying before uh, that there are more examples of female artists in in italy than than anywhere else but then I suppose this, I mean, this might be a bit of a controversial thing to say, I'm not sure, but arguably the majority of great artists from this time probably were from Italy, though of course not all. The sort of how women managed to be, become artists during this time varied quite a bit. Um, I'll mostly be talking about Italian artists today. And the thing about Italy in particular is that most of the great art there was made for churches. So you could just wander into your local church and, and just all around you would be Titian and, and Raphael and Caravaggio. So for a budding artist, whether they're male or female, there was inspiration absolutely everywhere. You know, in comparison to somewhere like England, where the great art was really for the core, in, in Italy it was for, for everybody. So to take one example of this, um, Artemisia Gentileschi, the painter, her mother, she died when Artemisia was just 12 weeks old, uh, sorry, 12 years old. Um, and she was buried beneath paintings done by Caravaggio and Caracci, and you can really see their influences of these painters in, in her work, especially Caravaggio. Um, most of the women who became artists, particularly at the end of the 16th century and the beginning of the 17th, were daughters of male artists, and they had worked in their studios. So women like uh, Marietta Robusti, for example, who lived in the second half of the 17th century, her father was the very famous painter Tintoretto. Um, you have Lavinia Fontana around the end of the 16th, beginning of the 17th century, who was also the daughter of a painter, um, who was called Prospero Fontana. Um, Elisabetta Serrani in the middle of the 17th century, and of course Artemisia Gentileschi in the 17th century, um, she was the daughter of the painter Orazio Gentileschi. So this is kind of the most common route available to women initially. Um, it shifts a bit by the end of the 17th century, um, when it becomes more a case that sort of for aristocratic women, painting is a kind of, it's probably more of a hobby than a career. So you get women such as Anne Killigrew, who's part of the court James II and his wife Mary of Modena, who I'll talk about a bit later. Um, she was a patron of the arts. Um, an interesting exception to this is uh, Sofonisba Anguizola, who was the daughter of a relatively poor but noble family in Cremona, um, where she was born in 1532. So she's an exception in several ways. Um, even the daughters of artists often had to really fight for their training. So Serrani's father, for example, he was very reluctant to teach her to paint, but he was encouraged to do so by others who, who recognised her talent. But um, Anguizola's father seemed to have been pretty enlightened and he encouraged all of his children, whether male or female, to pursue whatever it was that inspired them. And he ensured that they had well-rounded educations that, that really included the arts. Um, although this might have been a bit more aimed at making them sort of rounded women to attract a husband, probably more than having independent careers. Um, but sort of thinking about uh, these women, what I think does become clear is that they did really have to rely on the men around them. Um, and this could be quite a dangerous thing. Um, the story, for example, of Artemisia Gentileschi is raped by her tutor, Agostino Tassi, is, is famous. And it's important to remember that this sort of world of artists in Italy was, was a kind of underworld in many ways. And being a woman in a man's world had, had its own risks. Um, and having been trained or, or encouraged by men, these women often then married men who would support their work and talents. So Lavinia Fontana married a man called Gianpaolo Zappi, and he had to diss her, well, as her agent, really. 
but he also then took responsibility for the household in the way that a wife usually would have done at this time and, and she became the sort of the breadwinner and the family really relied on her income to support them and this is true of Artemisia as well um, her, though her marriage to a man called Pier Antonio Stiatesi it went sort of pretty sour and that's partly because he he spent all of her money and, and racked up these terrible debts which she had to, had to pay off um, a later and happier example of this kind of marriage is Mary Beale, who, who was active in England at the end of the 17th century, who I think we're going to talk about later, so I won't see too much here, but her, hus her relationship with her husband was one that was, was really based on a kind of equality, and it seems to have really lived up to that. Do you know what? It kind of sounds appealing. I, I need a husband like that who like, can do stuff in the house, and I can just concentrate on history, yeah, and exactly. the archives. He can walk the dogs, and then exactly. they won't moan at you. <laughs> exactly. You know, but then again, Alex and I have decided to become old spinsters together, you know. Yeah, we just want a porch so we can yell at people. Yeah, I think that's stuff. I do, to be honest. But you do get artists like that too. I mean, Elisabetta Serrani, she never married, so, um, you know, there's, there's, there's that as well. <laughs> <laughs> so we all know about Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, you've already mentioned uh, quite a lot about uh, Artemisa um, yeah. Gilens. Intellectually, yeah. I'm going to say it completely wrong. <laughs> she actually gets involved with the British royals, doesn't she? How does how does that happen? Yeah, that's right. So, um, so Artemisia Gentileschi, she was an Italian painter. Uh, she was born in Rome in 1593. Um, she was trained alongside her brothers in her father's studio, although um, early on her father didn't really seem to take that much interest in her as an artist. But as time went on, this changed, and, and he she became very encouraging of her work. Um, he employed a good friend of his as a painting tutor for him when he was work for her, sorry, when she, he was working on a commission for the Borghese family, so he wasn't around to teach her then. Um, I mean, as I sort of alluded to, what follows then is extremely well known. This, this tutor, Agustino Tassi, raped her, and this abusive um, relationship, I suppose, for want of a better word, uh, it went on for about a year. When her father found out, he reported Tassi and actually had him arrested for, for rape. This is a pretty extraordinary thing to have done because it really compromised his own honour as well as that of his daughter. But he clearly wanted some kind of justice for her, um, justice which he never got. The trial went on and Artemisia was tortured during this, not Tassi. Um, and though Tassi was found guilty in exile, this, this was never kind of implemented. So he stayed in Rome. So Artemisia left Rome. It wasn't really safe for her to stay there. Um, she married quickly and, and moved to Florence. And it was there that she really came into her own as an artist. You know, in Florence, nobody knew her. She could completely reinvent herself. Um, and they, I mean, her, her, the sort of the rape, the rape and the trauma has no doubt influenced her work. You just have to look at her Judith or her Susanna to see how attuned she was to the, to the horrors of sexual violence. But it's very important, I think, not to view her through the lens of a victim. You know, in Florence, she ended up working for the Medici. She had her own studio. She controlled her own finances. And she became this really successful artist and very canny businesswoman. After this, um, this period in Florence, she used to get back to Rome for a short time before moving to Naples, um, where she managed to navigate a very difficult world. Um, the artistic life of Naples was really controlled by this cabal, um, which was run by the artist Ribera. Um, and painters who received commissions from outside this group were, were threatened, their workshops were absolutely sort of trashed, um, it was a deeply violent world and most artists left in fear. Uh, but Artemisia stayed and she somehow seems to have thrived. It's not really clear how she managed to do that. Um, 
So by the time she got to London in 1638, she was a celebrity artist. Um, as I've already said, she worked for the Medici, but she'd also worked for the papal court and, and really for all the great and the good of Europe. Um, the English king, Charles I, was completely obsessed with Italian art and he was desperate for an Italian painter at court. So Artemisia's father, Orazio, had been invited there by the royal favourite, the Duke of Buckingham, but Charles I didn't really seem to think very much of him. And he'd actually been trying to persuade Artemisia to go there for years, probably from as early as 1634, um, but, but to no avail. And there's actually quite a funny story about a different Italian artist who, who Charles I had invited called Guercino, who, I mean, he was quite like the Gentileschi's in that he was working between a sort of, uh, sort of Caravagist realism, if you like, in the early Baroque style. Um, but he'd responded to, this, to the invitation by saying that he would never go to a nation that was so cold, so damp, and so full of heretics. Um, but anyway, I mean, maybe some of these reasons might have influenced Artemisia's reluctance as well. But by the time um, Artemisia arrived in London, Charles I already had three of her works in the Royal Collection. Uh, to put this into context, her father had four pieces in the collection, which had mostly been made for the Queen rather than the King. And Orazio, you know, he'd been in London. He'd been the, a, a painter at court for over a decade, and he only had one more painting there than she did. So it sort of gives an indication of how much um, Charles I liked her. It seems that the reason that she went to London in the end, though, was, was really that her father was dying and he asked her to go. So he sent her brother to go and get her and she went to London basically to help him to finish his last commissions, which uh, were for Henrietta Maria, the main one being a ceiling painting for the Queen's House in Greenwich, which uh, is now actually at Marlborough House. Uh, so Henrietta Maria did seem to have been quite taken with Rezio's work, unlike her husband, um, then Orazio had been court painted to her mother, so there's a kind of legacy there. Um, after her father died, Artemisia doesn't really seem to have stuck around for very long, although a painting from 1639 would suggest that she might have sort of been looking to see what she could make of life there. Her self-portrait is the allegory of painting, which is in the Royal Collection and usually housed at Hampton Court. It sort of shows her in action with dishevelled hair and rolled up sleeves and you know, she's holding a, a palette and she's really, she's completely engrossed in her work, which, which is actually just out of view on the canvas. So, you know, she just arrived in London and this painting is a sort of, is a real advertisement. She's saying, oh, I'm a painter, come and, come and see what I can paint. Um, but ultimately, it seems that she didn't really like England. There are letters from her to Francesco d'Este, the Duke of Modena, at the end of 1639 saying, that she'd had, you know, she had great favours bestowed on her in London by the Crown, but she'd much rather work for him if he'd offer his patronage. So she was obviously trying to sort of find a way out. It's not known exactly when she left England, but it's thought she might have gone with Marie de Medici, the mother of Henrietta Maria, when she left in 1642. And this is sort of when the rumblings of civil war began. And sadly, there's, there's not much known about what she produced in London, um, but hopefully these parts of her life will start to get pieced together again as, as interest in her continues to increase. You really wanted to talk to us as well and we want to hear about uh, Elisabetta Serrani, you already mentioned her, so who is she? Oh she's, she's just great, um, so Elisabetta Serrani, she was an artist from Bologna, uh, she was born, she's a bit later than, than Artemisia, so she's born in 1638 
Um, but like Artemisia, she came from a family of artists and she was trained at her father's studio. Um, her father had been a student of Guido Reni and, and he was a pretty successful painter himself. Um, but Reni, she had a huge influence on Sereni and, and actually as an artist, she, she was known as the female reincarnation of him. So you can really kind of see how this narrative comes up. Um, she became a very important and renowned artist. And when her father became too ill to run his studio, she took it over. So this was a really pivotal moment for her. Um, she could really be in control of how she operated and she became responsible for the finances of the family. So all of the money that they earned came from her commissions and from her work as a painting tutor. Um, and her, her work is particularly interesting in just how varied it is, which may have something to do with the fact that she was, she was very highly educated. So she was well-versed in classical mythology, and biblical history, and she was also a very talented musician. Um, but what makes her really stand out, I think, is the way that she ran her, her father's studio. She transformed it into a place where women could, could study painting and where they could train to be artists. So women from any walk of life were welcome, and it really gave opportunities to, to women who, you know, whether sort of inside or outside of, of artistic backgrounds. Um, she really was very loved in the city of Bologna. When, when she died, they gave her this extraordinary funeral. There were sort of formal orations and performances of poetry and music, which had been commissioned for the event. And there was this sort of huge um, sort of procession which carried her casket. And there was this life-size sculpture of her. It's all pretty amazing. And she was only 27 when she died. So that's massive. insane. It yeah, makes me feel really... like a complete underachiever. Well, exactly. That's what I always think when I look at her. I think, God, I'm already older than that. <laughs> um, you know, there's sort of lots of women from her studio uh, then went on to be quite successful artists themselves. She's pretty great. I think we should step away from Italy. I know you love it. And I know the women <laughs> are absolutely, painters are awesome. But let's take a step and let's head to Britain and talk about the first female artist, Mary Beale. Yes, yeah, so, so Mary Beale was that sort of relatively rare thing, an, an English painter born and bred. Um, she was born in Suffolk in 1633. Um, her father was, was a rector, but he was also an amateur painter. And, you know, he kind of was probably the one who initially sort of taught her basic things in painting and, and where she got the interest from. But she... She never received any formal artistic training like the, the other women that, that I've been talking about. Um, her father was a friend of the court painter, uh, Peter Lely, and it was partly through his encouragement of her work that she really kind of was able to become an artist. And much of what she learned about technique was from copying his work and other pieces in the Royal Collection that she, that she had access to through him. Um, when she was 18, she married a man called Charles Beale, who was also an amateur painter and he was extremely supportive of her talent and her ambitions to become an artist. Um, they moved to Covent Garden in London, um, and it was really here that where Beale started to work as a professional painter. We actually know quite a lot about how she worked in comparison to other people, um, because her husband kept these meticulous diaries, and in these you have accounts of you know, how, she, how she mixed her pigments, of who visited her, you know, how much she charged for paintings, and, and just all sorts of things. It's a real... It's a real treasure trove. Um, she did paint a few aristocrats, but she wasn't a court artist. Um, but she was very much at the centre of London's artistic and literary scene. So one of her sitters was the writer Afra Ben, for example. Um, Beale was also a writer. She wrote a treatise called A Discourse of Friendship, which was actually about marriage. 
in which uh, she used the story of Adam and Eve to say that marriage should be a state of equality. Um, I'll just read a small bit here, a very tiny bit. Um, so she wrote, for when God at, had at first created him, it is not fit, said he, that man should be alone. So, he then gave, uh, so then he gave him Eve to be a meet help. And what can that imply but that God gave her for a friend as well as for a wife? I like, really like that. Yeah, isn't it lovely? Um, but this was actually pretty radical at the time. Mm. Um, and it, but it really does seem to be something that she and her husband live by. There's this um, thing he wrote in 1677 that he had sort of abandoned all of his personal ambitions to devote himself entirely to supporting the career of um, well, my dearest heart, which is what he called her. Um, there are these reports from friends of theirs who went to visit them of this sort of extraordinary bliss and happiness that just being in their presence sort of gave them. Um, but Beale lived during a period of, of political insecurity, which seems to have navigated it pretty well, um, mostly by not getting involved, which I suppose in lots of ways is the benefit of not being a court artist, is that you don't have to kind of be part of a faction. Um, and there were certainly points where business was difficult, but, but she seems to have had a very, very successful career. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Absolutely. Um, well, how did these women live? Did they... How different was their experience of being a woman at this time to normal people? And I want to know if they made money as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they absolutely did make money. Um, mm. Sometimes, sometimes lots of it. Um, it's difficult to say uh, in terms of their experience. So I think it's, it's sort of important not to generalise about the sort of the artist experience or the woman's experience. Mm. Obviously, they vary so much depending on things like their, their class, their you know, the background they were born into, where they were from. I mean... At the beginning of the 17th century, there were women working as artists in Italy, for example, but not so much in Britain. So things like that play, play a bit of a part. Um, but women sort of were artists in lots of ways. And I was saying a bit earlier that you had women who were daughters of artists and trained in their studios. But then you also had women who were nuns, who produced sort of works for churches and, and various religious scenes. Um, and then you had, you know, aristocratic women for whom painting was the hobby, like I was saying about Anne Killigrew in the 17th century. Um, Although not aristocratic, you also get women like Angelica Calvin in the 18th century, a bit later, who sort of mixed in aristocratic circles. So it's, it's difficult to give a, a sort of a single account of, of the lives of women artists. But that being said, um, I think there was a sense that, that women were, who were artists were different. Uh, that a woman could or would do a man's work has sort of historically been seen as threatening. 
there are so many examples of this and painting is really no different. Um, certain subjects were also less available to them. They couldn't really paint male nudes, um, for example. Um, and as all artists work mostly from commissions, their commissions were often for portraits rather than kind of more interesting classical or biblical scenes. Um, but really without this, the possibility of studying anatomy or drawing from life, because it was sort of, it was considered that the women shouldn't, shouldn't sort of see naked bodies. Uh, it was much harder for women to undertake more complex uh, compositions and sort of large-scale multi-figure scenes. And this didn't mean that they, that they never did. In fact, they definitely did. And they almost certainly found ways to paint nudes, but these things just weren't as easily accessible to them in the way that they were accessible to men. Um, but at the same time, they would have had a lot more freedom than other women at this time. You know, broadly speaking, women were expected to stay sort of within the domestic sphere. And female artists naturally operated outside of that. Um, yeah, they made money. Uh, depending on who they painted for, they, they may have uh, have influence and access to power in a way that was denied to the majority of women. But, you know, they had to fight harder for it than men did, of course. And, and they were greeted with, you know, quite a lot of scepticism. Although I'm not sure that's necessarily singular. Uh, to this moment. I remember hearing this, this thing that Lee Krasner in her sort of early years was told, you know, there was no way that a woman could have produced that. And it's always reminded me of this letter that Artemisia Gentileschi wrote to her patron where she says, I will show you what a woman can do. And this sort of fighting talk and determination in showing, you know, women can produce anything that a man can is, is really striking. Mm. They really had to be like that to, to survive and to flourish in that world. What is it, that quote about well-behaved women don't achieve anything? Yeah, yeah, exactly. They had to be cutthroat. Yeah, Still do. Yeah, well, I was going to say, a bit like us sometimes in this industry. Yeah, I must admit, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, oh, I wonder how much has changed. <laughs> Nothing, really. <laughs> no. You, just, you, you mentioned, obviously, women about the whole nudes thing, right? So we can, we can, scrap, we can scrap naked people. <laughs> um, but what other kind of paintings did they paint? Uh, were they just landscapes or just standard portraits and who were they painted for? So predominantly we see women painting portraits but then I mean at this time that is arguably true of men as well I guess. Um, portraits were by far the most popular commission for any artists um, although a lot of people in the art world could have been quite snooty about that so you know, Artemisia's father Orazio for example he basically refused to paint portraits because he thought he was above that kind of work. But if you wanted to make a living as an artist, then you know, well, that was what you did. People, people want to be immortalised, they want to show off. And, and if, you're, if you're the one who does that and you do it well, then, then you're really onto a good thing. Um, but on the whole, you know, these women painted all sorts of things. You have women like uh, Giovanni, Giovanna Garzoni, who she actually has an exhibition at the moment at the Palazzo Pitti in Florence. Um, and she painted these amazing sort of watercolour botanical still life pieces. And, and um, there's someone called Fede uh, Galizia, who she also painted still lives as well as portraits and, and biblical scenes. Um, Artemisia Gentileschi's work is extremely varied. Um, but in that, in, in sort of the level of, of varied that she is, she's probably a bit of an exception. Um, we know that she painted a lot of classical and biblical scenes and that she was commissioned to do so, which is partly what makes her quite unusual. Um, Indeed, some of these are some of these are her most famous works. So things like Susanna and the Elders or Judith and Holofernes, they're particularly celebrated. And she painted these subjects over and over again. Um, 
they were particularly popular stories at the time to paint, both amongst men and women. So you get these sort of famous pieces by Caravaggio and Rubens, but then there are also uh, versions by Lavinia Fontana and, and again, Elisabetta Sarani, who, who painted these stories. Um, in terms of who they painted for, you know, working as a court artist was really the goal of any painter. Um, but this wasn't really easy for, for anyone. And patronage in general wasn't that secure. So it's a, it's a very difficult world for everybody, not just for women. Um, some women painted for women. So Lavinia Fontana, for instance, had a lot of commissions from women. Um, but she was also very supported by her local community. Um, certainly, Sofonisba Anguissola was also the recipient of a lot of female patronage. Um, with her, so Philip II of Spain and Elizabeth of Valois, his wife, employed her at the Spanish court. Uh, so she had that kind of holy grail as a court painter, um, where she taught uh, Elizabeth and her daughter's painting as well. And she sort of painted the whole family and, and all of their friends. So they were great supporters of her work. And, and it's known that she and Elizabeth became very good friends. And actually, Philip took a lot of interest in her. And even after Elizabeth of Valois' death, he sort of arranged a, a good marriage for her, if you like, to a man called Fabrizio um, Pignatelli, who was the son of the Prince of Paterno, who's the Viceroy of Sicily, so it's quite a high up um, position, and even paid her dowry for this marriage. Um, records also show that he continued to give her a royal pension of 100 ducats so she could keep painting, and, and she lived in comfort even after her husband died. So, you know, she, she was encouraged to be an artist and, and to work. But so I suppose the answer is sort of lots of different people and lots of different things. But um, yeah, there's some those examples. Alex, do you want to paint me a painting, please? No, I'm all right, thanks. Not unless you're <laughs> going to pay me a hundred ducats. I don't know what one of those is, but if you can live well by it, I'm there. It's pretty decent, decent sum, I'd say. Yeah. I can pay you with a hug. No. <laughs> going to cost you more than that it's going to be at least cake but anyway breeze um, can you find women in other areas of the art world i'm thinking of like people patrons and collectors and things like that i i'm starting to think of the duchess of portland again because of our interview with maddie um oh, yeah. hoarding stuff so are there people going around like patronizing women's art by buying it up and creating big collections and are those collections still around yeah absolutely um so women were very much part of the art world, not just as artists, but also yeah, as collectors and, and as patrons. So I guess, you know, one of the most famous of these is going to be Isabella d'Este, who was a Countess of Mantua, sorry, Duchess of Mantua from 1490. And she's known as a great collector of art, as well as a sort of, you know, she was a fashion icon and political powerhouse and sort of all round force to be reckoned with, really. Um, but she supported all of the arts, sort of literature, music, you name it. And... The list of painters that she patronised is, is astonishing. You have like Bellini, Giorgione, Da Vinci, Mantegna, uh, Perugino, Raphael, Titian, Correggio. I mean, it's completely extraordinary. It's like the, relation, uh, the Renaissance basically happened in her house. Um, but there are so many other women, such as Elizabeth of Valois, who I've already mentioned, who, who was an amateur painter, and also the patron Sylvanispa Anguissola. Um, and although I've mostly talked about Italy and I suppose a tiny bit about Spain, you know, artistic practice obviously wasn't isolated to these parts. Um, in England, we had the great um, Alethea Talbot, who was Countess of Arundel. Uh, she was mostly active from the 1610s to the 1630s, I'd say. And I really could talk about her forever, so I'll try and restrain myself. <laughs> um, she, she was born into a very, very noble aristocratic family. Uh, she was the daughter of Gilbert Talbot, who was the Earl of Shrewsbury, 
and Mary Cavendish, and you know, obviously the Cavendish family is, is still quite famous. Um, her grandmother was a formidable Bess of Hardwick, who was this extraordinary businesswoman, really. Um, yeah, so she was very high up in the court, and her husband, Thomas Howard, was very close to the king, and they were really at the forefront of, of power. Uh, but alongside this, they were both great connoisseurs of art, and they, they basically built up the greatest art collection in the country after the kings. Um, and they were also key artistic advisors to the king. They were the ones who, who really got him into da Vinci and showed him the importance of the da Vinci's drawings. And it's, it's sort of down to them that we have so many in the Royal Collection today. Um, Aletheia was a patron of both Van Dyck and Rubens, who were the most important artists in England at that time. Um, and she was probably involved in getting Van Dyck over to England as court painter in the first place. And there are these wonderful rumours that she was the patron of Artemisia Gentileschi when she was in London, but I haven't really found any evidence of this. I'm still very much hoping to. Damn um, it. <laughs> no, I must be there if I want it to be true enough. Yeah. <laughs> we all know that struggle. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there's this wonderful story about Aletheia from 1623 when she went to Mantua, where basically, as far as I can see, basically went as a spy. Um, there were these sort of rumblings at the Mantuan art collection which was mostly put together by Isabella d'Este, um, might be up for sale for the right price. But this was all very sort of hush-hush because the people of Mantua would never allow such a thing to happen if they'd known. But Mantua was desperately, desperately in need of money and they were constantly under threat of invasion, so they needed to raise funds. So Aletheia went there, possibly with Van Dyck. She'd been travelling with him before that. Um, and she somehow managed to leave with not only a sort of a full inventory of full list of the art in the collection but also this really detailed plan of the palace which showed where everything was kept and it's kind of it's quite a coup um, and then this resulted a few years later in the great Manchian art purchase of which the majority of the British Royal Collection is made up of today um, so I mean that's a bit of a tangent but she's a really good example I think of how varied the roles of women in art could be um, a later example is Mary of Modena, who was the wife of James II. She set up a sort of intellectual salon for women at her court. Um, there were three main women who were part of this. So Anne Killigrew, who was a, a painter and a poet, um, Anne Finch, who, who was a very important poet, and Sarah Churchill, who probably needs no introduction. Um, she, she went on to be very influential at the court of Queen Anne. So I mean, this is sort of into the 17th century. Um, in terms of patronage of the arts, you know, all of these women were, well, were aristocratic or royal, but then, you know, that's, that's really who had the money for this sort of thing. That's probably going to be true of men as well. So how did these remarkable, I mean, because they were remarkable women, how did they manage to navigate in such a male-dominated profession? Um, so basically, it seems to me that in almost every case in this period, a lot of their success... Um, you know, it was largely due to the support and patronage of, of the men around them, which does make a lot of sense when, when you think about the relative positions of men and women at the time. Um, but it's also very clear that they needed to prove that they were exceptional, that they needed you know, to work doubly hard and you know, be doubly talented in comparison to the men around them. So, you know, lots of these women I've already spoken about, I mean, I don't know where they found all the time. Um, lots of them had children as well. So Lavinia Fontana, she gave birth to 11 children, although sadly only three outlived her. But it's sort of amazing to think how much these women had to juggle, especially Fontana, I think. Um, you know, she financially supported the family. Whilst, I mean, if she had 11 children, she must have basically spent about 15 years almost always pregnant. You know, <laughs> <and> like, <laughs> I know, exactly. I just think, 
how on earth did did she manage it? Um, so they kind of had to just be a bit sort of uber human. Um, but as with all artists, patronage was the key, and you know women seemed to have been more likely to get ahead if they had a you know a prominent figure backing them. So. Uh, Sophonius Berlanguazola, for example, she was actually backed by Michelangelo and Mary Beale by Peter Lely, we talked about. Um, but a really key way in which some of these female artists not only navigated this world but, uh, but excelled in it was really through the cultivation of their image. So they, they sort of turned this disadvantage of being a woman into an advantage. So a great example of this is Artemisia Gentileschi, again, who really more than anyone else harnessed this, this sort of cultivation of the image and really made herself into a celebrity. And this was central to her success. She painted you know, many, many self-portraits and even those that, that sort of aren't strictly self-portraits, they still have female figures who look suspiciously like her. Um, it's a letter actually from the 1640s to her patron in Naples um, called Donna Antonia Rufo, where she wrote, um, if your Lordship likes the work, I will also send him my portrait so that he can keep it in his gallery as all the princes do. And it's this sort of <laughs> wonderful... Hint, hint. Yeah, exactly. There's also this kind of wonderful and hilarious moment, I think. Um, it kind of gives this image of, of all these sort of Artemisia fanboy monarchs with her picture on that wall. Um, but the sort of appeal that she cultivated of, you know, you can have not just an Artemisia, but Artemisia herself uh, was the, really the key to her success. And yeah, she absolutely was a celebrity. Um, there's also the story of Van Dyck going to see Sophonis Banguizola when you know she was in her 90s, which is particularly impressive. This is 1624, so living that long is kind of extraordinary. Um, but she gave him advice on painting, and he took down these sketches of her, uh, one of which is actually a painting now, and you know these things still survive. Um, the painting is really interesting because she just looks really deeply unimpressed, and I love it. Um, but Van Dyck recorded that he'd learnt more from her about what he called the, the true principles of painting than he ever did from anybody else he met. So whilst we talk about it being hard for women, which, you know, it undeniably was, it would also perhaps be a bit misguided to think that the ones who, who kind of broke through and who made it, that they weren't respected and, and celebrated in, in their lifetimes as artists, because, yeah, they absolutely were. This has been brilliant. Uh, just finish for us by telling us you can, if you had to pick one female artist from the period as your favourite, which one is it? Oh, this is so hard. Um, so, my initial kind of my kind of gut reaction went uh, Sophonis Banguissola, but then I don't know. It's quite hard to look past the beauty and, and the life of Artemisia Gentileschi's work, and she was such an extraordinarily interesting woman. But I do have a real soft spot, as you might have gathered, for Elisabetta Serrani. Like, she did so much to pave the way for female artists in, in a way that's really under-acknowledged. And, and her work has this beautiful sort of ethereal quality to it, which is very rare um, for that point. It's sort of, sort of harking back to, to kind of early Renaissance in lots of ways. So I think if I really had to choose just one, um, I would probably go with Elisabetta Serrani. But I can't pretend that doesn't hurt a little bit. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on to give us an overview of some of these fantastic women and what they're achieving in the 16th and 17th centuries. I'm going straight on Google now to look at some of these names and to look at their paintings because you've made them sound so exciting. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much for having me on. This has, has been great. Join us tomorrow when Mark Gallagher will be talking all about the Nazis and motor racing in the 1930s and how they tried to basically commandeer it 
for propaganda. I had absolutely no idea about any of this when we started. I love Formula One, so it was a really interesting piece of history. You can also tune in for another instalment of Back Chat, which is Alina's baby and is basically her and I talking rubbish about history for a short blast 15 minutes or so to entertain you on a break at work or on a bus journey or whatever i have no idea what she's planning for us to talk about so it's going to be a surprise for me as well and stay tuned because soon we will be bringing you a special week of programs on african american history the ripple effect of what happens to george floyd has gripped the world and we've taken our time with this but we felt it was important to try and put those events in perspective and not only talk about how america came to be at this point it is at now this crucial point but also why we've interviewed some fantastic historians there's some poignant inspirational and utterly tragic material in some of these podcasts it's been a highly emotional ride recording them and we're really looking forward to sharing them with you as well don't forget you can become a patron of history hack for as little as a dollar a month just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com it will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. 